when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. This podcast contains explicit language. So that happened. This week, we are joined by the host of MSNBC's All In with Chris Hayes, who, in case you haven't figured it out, is named... Chris Hayes. We'll be talking about his new book, A Colony in a Nation, which documents how white fear has fueled America's frustratingly unjust two-tier justice system, where some get to live peacefully as citizens and others get treated by the state as if they are under the boot heel of an occupying force. Meanwhile, have you been wondering how the next big world war would start? Well, wonder no more. It could all begin over the Baltic Sea with a confrontation between an American spy plane and a Russian fighter jet pushing the boundary of confrontation. But this isn't just some fantasy out of Top Gun. The real story here is that all of the traditional mechanisms by which we've de-escalated conflict so many times in the past have deteriorated, and leaders on both sides seem ill-equipped to lead the way back. The Huffington Post David Wood joins us to explain. Finally, we have to strap in and deal with the week that was. The judicial filibuster in the Senate has been put out to pasture. White House advisor Steve Bannon has been kicked off the National Security Committee. House Intelligence Committee Chairman Devin Nunes is recusing himself in the House's investigation into Russian meddling. And Paul Ryan's attempt to bring Trump care back from the dead is now also dead again. When will life ever return to sanity? I'm Jason Lincolns with Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, and David Wood. Here's what happened first. Hey, everybody. Welcome. You're listening to the So That Happened podcast of the Huffington Post. Our weekly chronicle of our spin through an indifferent universe on a swiftly tilting planet. Have a great show this week. Uh, MSNBC's Chris Hayes, I think is his last name, is here. He'll be talking about his new book, A Colony in a Nation. But before we get to that, we have to strap on the news feed bag and try to tunnel our way through to the daylight. Uh, it's been another... That was some weird metaphoring. I'm Yeah, that's my stock and trade. Bad metaphors. <laughs> Joining us, uh, as always, got... Uh, Arthur Delaney. Hi. And uh, Zach Carter. Hi. And so I, I always introduce you in the order of who I think is going to be cool or not. Or not. But um, so much to talk about this week, beginning with the nuclear option, which is a terrible, stupid beltway metaphor for the destruction of yet another democratic norm. It's one of the several things that went down this week. There's a lot of going down this week. The filibuster went down. Mm-hmm. Devin, uh, Devin Nunes went down. Yes. Steve, Steve Bannon, Bannon went down. Went down. Uh, but and, and the Obamacare repeal also went down. There are two schools of thought over whether it's a good or a bad thing to nuke the judicial filibuster. On the it's a bad thing side, you have people who say, well, you know, everyone's just sort of, you know, think piecing their way to the erosion of another big democratic norm. And uh, it's going to be hell with the lid off forevermore. 
on the other hand, you could say that after, I don't know how many years of parliamentary brinksmanship over judicial nominees, everyone, if it's nuked, everyone's finally playing on the same playing field. It's all about raw majority power anymore. It's not about any kind of accommodations. Really kind of gives the lie to the whole advise and consent part of the Senate. That's a great point, but what's so frustrating about it is coming on the heels of not even allowing hearings for Merrick Garland. I think that's why it stings so bad for Democrats. I think I think that it should be historically remembered that the refusal to even perform advise and consent duties on the Merrick Garland opening was the straw that broke the camel's back, the ultimate violation of these sacred norms we're talking about. But, you know, Democrats have always tried to be accommodating in this in this sense, but at the same time, they've played a role in eroding it themselves. They changed the rules um, back when they controlled uh, the Senate in 2013. And they'll control it again someday. And, when, and, and then, I guess, it, we'll see if they're stupid enough to bring back the filibuster. Um, but it looks like Democrats kind of got what they wanted out of the Gorsuch nomination. They weren't ever going to be able to really stop him. Um, but I think this uh, plays well to their base, right, Zach? I think this was the right play. I mean, look, the, the Republicans could nuke the filibuster or not nuke it whenever they want. Democrats didn't really have any negotiating power over whether Republicans would try to exercise power with the with the majority and the presidency, um, what they what they had the opportunity to do was to draw clear lines and make a case to the public that their values and their policies and their principles were different from those that the Republicans were presenting. And with regard to Neil Gorsuch, they said this guy is a is an extreme right wing ideologue. We don't like anything that he does, and we're not going to vote for him. And we're going to put up a united front to uh, do everything we can to stop him. And we will make the Republicans have to change the way the Senate chamber works if they want to get him through. I think that was just a smart political play. Um, they had no ability to actually stop Neil Gorsuch from getting confirmed. Uh, but I think for any Democrat who looks at Gorsuch's record as a judge, they've got to think that that guy's a pretty bad judge who represents, uh, you know, things at the opposite end of the ideological spe- spectrum from just about everybody in the Democratic Party. So uh, I, I think this was the right play. And I think, it, I, you know, and I think ultimately, long term, the filibuster is just not a terribly healthy norm. I don't think it accomplishes a whole lot. Um, and, and I think it gets in the way of, of good government more often than it you know, prevents bad things from happening. It certainly gets in the way of good media reporting since so often during the Obama administration, we were talking about uh, a bill that failed or a law that failed in the Senate and never failed because it actually never came to uh, a vote. But then, then, then we're talking about non-judicial filibuster. Obviously, the more common filibuster remains in place. Um, moving on, uh, you were talking about people going down this week. Uh, Steve Bannon is out. Widely regarded as Steve Bannon demoted from his role his unusual role on the National Security Council, and of course, there's White House spin that actually he didn't do anything there. Actually, he was only there to control crazy Mike Flynn, which seemed weird. Just <laughs> don't appoint Mike Flynn. Just know that more people see this as a demotion, which I think is uh, probably closer to the truth. Yeah, he's been feuding with Jared Kushner, who is Trump's son-in-law, uh, and now basically the president, also Jared Kushner. Yeah, it uh, it, it just you know Bannon has they. Fine, you know Steve Bannon has less power inside the White House. I, I guess that's good. Yeah, um, that means racists. Nineteen seventy three French novels have less power inside the White House. Yeah, I mean he's a he's a pretty weird bad guy. But uh, but when you look at 
you look at the other people in the administration, they're also bad in different ways. So, you know, essentially the Goldman Sachs wing of the of the Trump administration is, is flexing their muscle. Uh, but it seems like the only thing they're able to do when they flex that muscle is make Steve Bannon look bad to the Beltway press. I mean, the, the Goldman Sachs wing of the party wanted to do Obamacare appeal. That just went down again this week. Uh, another thing that failed. So it's it, it's astonishing to me how dysfunctional this party is, given they control all three branches of American government right now. But but hey, that's where we are. Who would have guessed that Donald Trump would be a you know, kind of bad president? Of course, that same <laughs> Goldman Sachs wing is starting to talk about reinstating Glass-Steagall. That's been the the more recent hubbub this week. Oh, they are? I haven't played. Not yeah, I didn't all. notice that. Gary Cohn, <laughs> Gary Cohn has talked about... Um, reviving a, a sort of like firewall between uh, investment banking and, and more common banking. Uh, it's been likened to a revival of Glass-Steagall. You know, I mean, that, w- that would require breaking up the, the largest banks in the country and be a pretty radical change to the financial system um, that Bernie Sanders supported and Elizabeth Warren supports. Right. Uh, it's, it's, that's seems, a good idea. Unlikely. Uh, well, look, it's, it's weird that Trump has sort of talked out of both sides of his mouth on bank stuff since since the campaign. He'll say on the one hand, we got to get rid of Dodd-Frank. It's terrible. It's crushing all of our community banks. Just crap. It's not true. Uh, and on the other hand, he says, you know, these banks are too big to fail. These bankers, they're killers. We're going to break them up by, by putting in Glass-Steagall, which would make the financial system safer. There would be fewer government subsidies for you know risky activity. Uh it, you know, in a lot of ways, it's sort of the idea behind the Volcker rule. It's just a better way of implementing that idea. And it requires the banks to be actually broken up so they're smaller and safer. Uh, it, you know, we'll see. If, if, if the Trump administration really gets behind that policy, I think that's a really politically savvy move. It'll put a lot of corporate Democrats in a tough spot. Yep. Um, and, it'll, and it'll put progressive Democrats in a tough, tough spot where they would have to say, OK, I'm voting with the Trump administration on something. Right. Uh, you know, the, the partisan split up there would be really, really confusing for the Democratic Party. Uh, and I think it would look really good for Trump to be like, look, I'm, I'm taking on these big, powerful bad guy bankers. I mean, that that's why populism is directed not only at <laughs> at brown people. It can also be directed at rich people. Seems unlikely. And it works. It, would be, a, it would be a kind of a reviving move if he made it, but we'll see if he if he does it. Chances are. I would be shocked. Yeah, I would we'll, just be I'm totally sure shocked. he's not aware of the history of populism except for Andrew Jackson. And it'll, it'll Which depend, you learned like last week. It'll, right. it'll depend on who the last person in the room to talk to him about Glass-Steagall was. Um, Devin Nunes. You want to talk about Devin Nunes. You know, so I was thinking about Devin Nunes today. Devin Nunes this week uh, is essentially now recused himself of participating in House Intelligence Committee uh, adjudications and investigations into the Russian interference in the American elections and Trump team's connections to those nefarious Russian actors. Um, Nunes is the guy who keeps stepping on rakes. Here, this is right? what it is. Yeah. All, stepping on banana peels. All, everything that happens is meaningless, except I consider this a turning point in, in one, you know, closing a chapter on the whole. Trump tweet saga that started when he said Obama wiretapped me. <laughs> yeah. clo- and, and so and so Nunes is the one who attempted to prop up this self-evidently ridiculous claim with mysterious sources. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we all went into the ridiculous weeds on whether this was somebody whose name had been incidentally harvested through the course of surveillance of people related to things that had to do with – it was nonsense. And hopefully – this will hasten the end of that entire garbage news cycle. You you seem very optimistic, but you have to remember how it is that we got here. I'm just talking about the wire tapping part. That's what I'm talking about too. This is how we got here. Jeff Sessions lied 
during his Senate testimony about Russia's stuff. And subsequently, he had to recuse himself from Justice Department investigations into that. The fact that Sessions recused himself angered Trump to no end. He threw a fit in front of his senior staff, then flew to Mar-a-Lago, woke up Saturday morning, probably, I don't know, four in the morning, wherever wherever this man wakes up, and started tweeting about Obama wiretapping him. And that sent us into the goddamn weeds on this. And it led to everything that's come after that. The all you had to do is say I did something embarrassing and stupid all, in front of everybody. All right, take a breath. Though. We, are, we, are, so, we have emerged so, from those weeds, and Devin Nunes is gone. It's important to remember: all Trump had to do was not tweet something. We would have never ended up where we are right now. The Russia stuff had, will never end. He would have had to have taken. He would have had to have taken Sessions' recusal on the chin, but just shut up about it, move on. And yeah, the Russia stuff would have been ongoing, but. It would have presented the notion that he wasn't afraid of what the Russian investigation was going to reveal. You know, I think his I think this administration's stance is that they did nothing wrong. They don't act like it. They all act like they know how this story is going to end. Like they they've seen the final chapter and they're like, "Oh wow, we look shitty in this final chapter." <laughs> they also in order to justify this dumb tweet about Obama wiretapping Trump, uh, they keep they keep digging up information that shows law enforcement agencies and the intelligence community yes. was seriously investigating members of the they Trump keep campaign. Reminding people, <laughs> it's just crazy. That their guys are picked up on incidental collection on surveillance of legitimate espionage targets. It's it's really insane. It's the other really insane. thing that went down was, and you may not have even heard of this if you weren't paying attention, but Republicans early in the week were like, you know what? Our doomed Obamacare repeal bill isn't doomed after all. We're bringing it back. And then on uh, Wednesday, <laughs> they were like, never mind. <laughs> it's doomed. <laughs> Still doomed. We'll let you know, it's, listeners. It seemed so weird that but, they... And then on Thursday morning, they're like, you know, we're going to do this thing with high-risk pools, which is this really obscure... Diving board um, is too high, the water is too low Yeah, in the high-risk pool. You'll, ba- <laughs> you'll bonk your head on these things uh, because the premiums are really high, it won't cover your conditions for six months to a year, and your deductible is insane. They existed in 35 states before Obamacare, and they were garbage. So don't worry about it. Now you know about it, unfortunately, but you won't have to. It's not. It's nothing's not, going to happen. Good. They okay. can't pass a bill. It's okay. crazy. Uh, normally, we don't breeze through so much news like that, but every week in this administration, it is like strapping on a twenty-five pound bag of oats and being asked to finish it by the end of the day while tunneling while and tunneling. searching for daylight. Metaphors are not my strength. <laughs> I'm like Thomas Friedman in that regard. Anyway, uh, we have a really fine show today. We're going to have Chris Hayes in a minute talking about his new book, A Colony in the Nation. And then stick around because we have Huffington Post's own David Wood. Pulitzer Prize winning David Wood. Yes. He's going to explain to us all how – let me see if I have this right. Oh, the next world war is going to happen. So, so it's a it's a typical fun and optimistic week for this show. Uh, we will be right back. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. We're back and joining us now uh, from New York City. We are pleased as punch to have author and journalist. You've seen him at MSNBC, I believe, or as I call it, Mizenbik. Uh, you probably know him as the first, the editor of my first magazine story ever. The, the editor print. of yeah. Zach's that's, first that's magazine how, story ever. That's Chris how I'm Hayes. best known. Yeah, that. Hey guys, I'm. I'm, I'm <laughs> that. That's actually how I've been introduced at all the book events. Is Zach Carter's first story editor. It it really was quite a story. I think we can all we we can all agree on that. Um, but you hilariously, to- I cannot re- wait. I cannot. What was the story, Zach? It was a uh, it was a profile of a bank regulator that sort of served as a uh, a brief history of financial deregulation in the nineties. Wow, uh, hot. It was good. Hot. It was really good. It's actually how I, I got have... this job at the Huffington Post. Believe it or not. So I owe that you was one. a really good. I actually do. Re- a I remember that story being excellent. B you were a pleasure to edit. And C. Um, I can't imagine how clickbaity that was. It must have just burned down our servers. Here's the weird thing, though. Chris Hayes, despite that experience, you didn't say, "Well, I've, 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 I've reached my apex. I'm, all, I'm, all, I'm out, the, out of the game. I'm going to do something new." You stuck at it, journalism, and you even wrote a book called "A Colony of a Nation." You didn't settle. Did. You didn't just settle with a, a Zach Carter story. It really impressive impresses me. <laughs> I, I, it was hard to top, but, but here I am now. True that. Okay, so um, t- tell us about A Colony in a Nation and why you chose this moment to write this book. I, f- I feel like it's pretty self-explanatory, but you're the author. Tell me about it. You know, I, um, I've been doing a lot of reporting even before uh, the death of uh, Michael Brown and Ferguson. Like even before that, we'd always focused a lot on criminal justice on the show and, and racial justice. And then when Michael Brown died, um, was killed – we went to Ferguson and after that we went to Baltimore and we did reporting in New York about Eric Garner and we did reporting in Chicago. Um, we were in North Charleston when Walter Scott was shot and killed. We were in Dallas when the police officers there were murdered. Um, and over the course of this reporting, there was some point at which someone from Norton, Tom Mayer, my editor, reached out to my book agent and said, you know, Chris should think about writing – maybe writing a book about this. And at first I was really reticent and hesitant because I had no interest in writing a book that was like white guy explains Black Lives Matter. And I also thought that that would not obviously be appealing to anyone else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's a sort of question of like what is – what can I offer about this story and the set of sort of interlocking stories? And as I started to think about it and started to look through my notes from reporting and sort of think about my own time growing up in New York City, I kind of came to appreciate that, you know, there's a lot written about the ways in which we've sort of fractured this country along racial lines, particularly in terms of criminal justice, but less written about and more that I could sort of contribute about why it was we built this system, 
why, why do we make the system that we have, the system that uh, has created a world in which one out of every four prisoners in the entire world is an American, um, in which American police officers shoot more people uh, than any other uh, comparable uh, democratic nation? And so the the project of the book in a lot of ways was to sort of look at the system we built and interrogate why it is that we built it. And you go in for a lot, some self-interrogation on this as well. There's there's a lot of searing moments where you confront your own prejudices. Um, tell us about um, when you were growing up, the kind of things you learned about the way the criminal justice system worked. Yeah, I mean, I grew up in New York in the Bronx in the in the 80s and 90s. I started commuting down to the city uh, to go to high school you know, in 1991, which was like peak crime years. There was uh, about 2,300 murders in New York that year. Last year, there were 350 to give you a sense of the scale. Um, and, you know, the city was fascinating and bewildering and seductive and also terrifying at all times. Um, you know, I walked around the city just constantly with my eyes scanning the horizon for possible threats. Me and my friends got jacked all the time, our backpacks, our hats, our jackets, our wallets, our bus passes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I can keep listing the items that I got, we got taken from us. That's <laughs> of any interest. Um, uh, and so, you know, this, this, sense of, this sense of ominousness, the sense of what I call in the book white fear and the sort of elemental nature of that white fear, um, kind of fear of the other, fear of your own security always being compromised. It was, you know, just it was sort of second nature. It was part of how I came to know the city, and it was during that time, of course, that that Rudy Giuliani was elected mayor, and he was elected mayor because of that. Those two things, you know, mm. <laughs> were, were deeply connected. There were a lot of white liberals that voted for Rudy Giuliani because what he offered was um, a restoration of order, uh, a purging of that white fear, and don't you worry about what it will take. Uh, you know, there's going to be a crackdown. There's going to be toughness. There's going to be we're going to get rid of the squeegee men. We're going to we're going to get rid of all the disorder in the city, and we're going to make you feel better. And the you was a very specific one. Um, you know, he's running against the first black mayor of New York City and David Dinkins. So there's a sense of a restoration, which may sound familiar to people that just went mm. through. Uh, a 2016 campaign in which Rudy Giuliani was a chief surrogate, and I don't mm. think that's an accident. Um, so that you know that that was the experience of the city. You know, I was I was lucky enough. I had parents that were um, my parents had had and have great politics, and we lived in the Bronx, and I was in a world that was extremely diverse ethnically and racially, and and I think was spared drawing from this the wrong kinds of conclusions, but. The seduction of this idea of someone's going to come along and keep you safe and keep them away, I, I get that viscerally and powerfully. That that concept that you just uh, sort of casually alluded to there, order and disorder, I feel like it comes up all the time when people are talking about criminal justice. It It is never really – interrogated or explained what people mean when they're talking about order and disorder. And I, I feel like, you know, I, like I grew up in D.C., so it was it's not the same as New York, but it was, I think, some similar dynamics. Very similar. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What you're talking about. But I mean, I definitely remember growing up and being like, oh, yeah, order. That's like a thing. And law and order, those things go together. That makes sense. And I feel like your book, your book interrogates this a little bit more and and uh, <laughs> says a little bit more bluntly what people are really talking about when when they when they talk about order versus chaos. Absolutely. Like what, what we talk about, we talk about order. I mean, one of the big arguments of the book is that, 
you know, when we think of the concept law and order, which Nixon ran on and which uh, Donald Trump ran on, I mean, he very explicitly in his convention speech in 2016 says, I am the law and order candidate. You know, I think we think about it in terms of law, like enforcing the law, but it really is about the order part. <laughs> the promise mm-hmm. is really about preserving a certain order or reimposing a certain order because, you know, the law – people like to invoke the law as the end of an argument as opposed to the beginning of a discussion. Like, you know, you see this all the time with, with unauthorized immigrants. Like they broke the law. It's like, OK, they broke the law. Have you ever broken the law? And I asked this of every every book talk I've given. I said, you know, raise your hand if you've never broken the law. Well, no one raises their hand because everyone's broken the law. And in fact – Everybody drives a car is – Exactly. <laughs> and and I, I love to say this too. Like speeding is my favorite example because at some level it's like literally every person is sped. Um, also, that's objectively far more dangerous than like, you know – coming into the country without papers like it's actually speeding is actually like a genuine threat to other people in a way that like lots of other incidental law breaking isn't for instance selling m&ms on the subway which will get you a summons in new york city court is far less dangerous than speeding right but the casualness of speeding is such that we just like chalk that up to just well people do that and that to me gets at a deep question about what we mean when we talk about order, what we want the police to do, the authorities to do, law enforcement writ large. We're seeing this right now with ICE and, and CBP and stuff like that in the Trump era, which is that we want them to enforce a certain social order. What they do is enforce a certain social order and order is in the eye of the beholder and particularly in the hands of the powerful to construct and to shape. And so – I talk about in the book, you know, spending six weeks living in Madison, Wisconsin during football season while I was working as a a campaign volunteer or campaign organizer. And I'd never been in a Big Ten college town before. And I thought to myself, good Lord, this is disorderly. I mean, it's like (laughs) – it's just crazy. It's broken windows everywhere. Like good good luck trying to get away with that if you just like did that in like a poor inner city neighborhood. It was just like we're going to have thousands of people consuming huge amounts of – uh, alcohol in public and like running roughshod over everything. Like people would lose their minds. But there it's like, okay, this is part of the traditions. This is a sort of community arrived at norm and everyone's going to be passed out on couches and like urinating, uh, you know, in back alleys because like we're all fine with this. And that to me just sort of hit home how much this is all kind of perceptual when we talk about order. That hit home for me too. When I, I when I got to that part of the book, I started thinking about my own life. Um, I went to the University of Virginia. So did Zach. I'm sure that Zach and I, I won't speak for Zach. We did things that were strictly speaking illegal as young college men do with on an alcohol crazed campus. But the most static I ever took from a cop was maybe snarky chiding. You flash forward a few years after I graduate, a kid named Martise Johnson, who was a far better student than I ever was at UVA, uh, gets uh, beaten on the corner, which is the bar alley adjacent to the campus by ABC officers over uh, over an argument over whether he had a, a, a fake ID or not. He did not have a fake ID for the record, but he was beaten to a pulp all the same. And so one of the things your book clarified for me in the terms in terms of like who gets the brunt of justice and who gets the brunt of order is this idea of a colony and a nation, whereas I, as a white person, live in the nation Martise Johnson lives in the colony and there's no real map or dimension to it. Like like my experience taught me is that you could overlay the nation and the colony like it was the stage of an Alan Eichborn play, uh, depending on who was standing there and who was talking to cops any one time. 
Yeah, that's. I think that's exactly right, and I think those borders between what I call the colony and the nation uh, are are really complex and porous in all kinds of ways. So, you know, the, the the basic argument of the book is that we have two distinct legal regimes, and and one in the nation is what you would expect in a democracy, which is you know, sort of minimal interaction, frankly, with law enforcement. I mean, you basically want everyone wants zero interactions with the cops in their in their daily life, right? <laughs> that's a, yeah, the, sure, goal, yeah. the goal the goal for all people is that like you're not the victim of a crime. You're you're not the perpetrator or the suspect, and no one you know is any of those categories anyway. So you just go about, you know, you go to work, you pick up your kids, etc. Police are something that runs in the background. That's exactly right. Like I said, like I say in the book, it's like the operating system on your laptop. Yeah. Um, in, in the in the colony, you know, you have law enforcement that looks a lot more like what you would expect in not in in a tyrannical occupied land or a non democratic uh, regime, a place where like. Cops ask for your papers where they're constantly sort of surveilling and intruding and disrupting and searching. And in terms of those two regimes, how they sort of lay on top of each other geographically, the point about UVA is a great one, which is that like they're both geographical distinctions. And in, in cities, you have large swaths of, of terrain, right, which, which are sort of primarily one or the other. But then in a place like UVA and other places, you have them sort of laying atop each other and, and different individuals experience these different regimes based on what race they are. Uh, Chris, I feel like in the Democratic Party uh, sort of intelligentsia, there's been this debate going on really since the the primary uh, about about how to think about different differences in American society. Yep. Uh, and and your, your book is it's clearly a book that's about it's about race. Uh, but but there is this dialogue. Like, can we talk about race without talking about class? Can we talk about race as as distinct from class? Do you feel do you feel like your book uh, takes a, a position or, or inhabits that that debate in any way? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. I think um, so. There's a few allusions in the book that I think um, sort of sketch towards where where my thinking is on this. I think um, I don't think it's entirely a construct of race. So I think that I talk about the borders being porous, and I talk about the threat of the sort of colony overflowing its banks, and and I think that applies to particularly areas where you have you know real significant material decline among the white working class. And concentrated levels of uh, of addiction, particularly a place like McDowell County in West Virginia, where I was, where you know has the highest rate of drug induced deaths uh, of any county in the country at 141 per hundred thousand, which is a shocking number. The highest the homicides yeah. got in New York City uh, in the 1990s was 30 per 100,000. So this is a really this is a place that's been very hard hit, and you know. Part of the way that our criminal justice system functions is that addiction means run-ins with the law, right? So you're seeing in these places that like the enmeshing in the system is 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 pretty intense. Um, now there are real distinctions between the way law enforcement operates in a place like West Virginia and the way they do in say uh, the south and west side of Chicago that have to do with race, but. I do think there's – again, there's this sort of porousness there where race is this sort of primary factor but it's not just comprehensively uh, the factor. And part of that has to do with like the the kind of constructedness of race as a concept, which is a hard thing to kind of keep in your mind constantly when you're talking about it because you know, there's this great book called Racecraft by Karen and Barbara Fields, which is just you know makes a simple point that – Race is a category invented by racists, quite literally. Like <laughs> racial, like race is like racial hierarchy. Race is a category that that racist people made so that they could impose a racial hierarchy. It's not. There's no biological truth to it, right? It's a social reality. 
And it's a social reality that's created by people that that were trying to do something bad. And so every time that you're using that concept as a sort of key conceptual tool, which you do and have to because it's it's a social reality, you have to constantly be keep in mind that you're not reinforcing it as this essential thing, right? Um, and and then the last thing I would say about this sort of question about sort of race and class and how these sort of you know work against each other or in friction or tension. Mm. I will say that like. You know, there's this concept of white privilege, which I think is an important one. And in some ways, the book is kind of about that. But it is a little, I think, as a, as a kind of rhetorical approach, um, when you go to a place like McDowell County, like talking about white privilege down there seems a little insane. <laughs> right. Like, like that place just feels like, wow, you guys are going through it right now. This is you guys are going through the ringer. Um and it is true that 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 race produces a privilege, you know, uh, in all places. But but I also think the 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 flip side of that, and the ways in which that there's real possible groundwork for solidarity, is that like to the extent that these places like Mahoning County or Erie County or McDowell County are experiencing some of the effects of what it would be like to live in the colony, there's the groundwork to create some sort of partnership across these lines for a better future. Yeah, I guess the, the, the thing that's really uh, struck me throughout this you know, conversation, which at times I just think is kind of anno- annoying and try to like, I try to ignore it, but other times yeah, it, it gets very, it gets really... very like straw, straw manish and sort of, it, it feels a little like a perpetual, perpetual motion machine. Like, didn't we unplug that? Like, why is that, why is that still going? <laughs> right. But, but it's sort of what you're talking about there. It seems like there's a difference between diagnosing the problem and coming up with a solution to it. And I, I do feel like you can acknowledge that race and class are both real things that are somehow related and interact with each other uh, w- without having to say, well, we have we have to pick one in order and, and only solve one problem going forward. Uh, the, the idea might be that we could maybe we can we can solve the two together. <laughs> with, right. with some sort of uh, you know, well, some sort of set of solutions, right? I think there's also ways in which you can marshal people towards working towards a kind of politics that's going to make everyone better off. So, you know, a, a great example of this is, you know, in Colorado, marijuana legalization. So, marijuana legalization, you know, the drug the drug war is um, a huge, I think, social race of. A, a, the drug war mm-hmm. is a huge social waste of resources. Um, I think it's morally indefensible in many ways and you know decriminalizing and legalization uh, particularly marijuana and I think other controlled substances I think is probably the best thing now that is something that will have a net impact that will help people black and white although it won't erase racial disparity at all as we've seen in Colorado right so we right. we're actually getting data about this right because for instance juveniles can't uh, you know can't possess under the law and we see huge racial disparities in who's getting picked up for 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 juvenile arrests so there's no like magic wand that gets rid of the disparities but there are ways to sort of marshal people towards changes in policies that create a net benefit for everyone and yet the disparities remain over above that and th- that has to be sort of dealt with and attacked. You know, you um, you talked about the 2016 election. This seems to me to be an election in which the seductive power of order and disorder uh, was really, really palpable. It was everything. Is there it, is there a force that you could call perhaps just sort of basic justice or law that could be equally seductive? 
or are we tilting toward a future where we're we're trapped in this kind of bad dynamic between the colony and the nation? I, I don't know. I mean, I think that I do think the campaign was really a campaign about the seduction of order, and particularly for those places that are experiencing like chaos, disorder, unraveling, experiences of decline. I think that the, the Trump message was incredibly seductive, and partly that has to do with the fact that Trump himself is a creature of 1980s, 1990s New York, which was a New York in decline. I think that like yeah. a huge part of his appeal is that his formative worldview is the worldview of someone in New York in the period in which it was, quote, in decline. Things are coming undone, going to hell in a handbasket, and we need to like restore order. That's deep in him and that was a – he was able to export that to places that have nothing to do with New York City in the 1980s. <laughs> and in some, in some ways, that to me is what the whole border discussion is about, you know, the border wall. Um, you know, if you live in Erie County, County, Pennsylvania, like why do you – what do you care about the border? Yeah. <laughs> what, what, what's what is it? What's it to you? Like the board, like they're showing up at the border. It's like, well, you live in Erie County. Like, what are they going to do? Like, come up there and get a job? What? How is that? What? What is it to you? And the and the fact of the matter is, the border is a symbol of disorder, and it's this very the wall is a concrete symbol of order. I mean, it's just very much that, like black and white. Like there's disorder down there now. We're going to build a wall, and that's going to like literally wall us off. Literally create a boundary and a border. Of order and disorder, and a safe social hierarchy that you don't have to worry about too much. You, you, right. you can be like, comfortable it'll be with this under control. And I, I do think so. What I would say is, what the sort of you know what a, a progressive or left or even liberal version of sort of answering that call is. Um, I don't know, but I do think that like the idea of people who feel not in control of their lives being offered a vision of their lives that would put them more in control is pretty key. Um, and I don't mean control in this like free market sense as in like, please allow me more choices between insurers, which literally no one wants. The, the <laughs> what, <laughs> right? What, what you want is you want someone to like – you want to know that you have health care there so then you can focus on controlling your life in other ways, right? You, wanna, you, you want wanna, the problem solved, right? Right. You want the you problem solved, options. right? You want and, – and so that you want – so that you feel like – you're secure and taken care of and then can focus on the things you want to focus on. Well, seems like a basic insight about the psychology of, of populism, whether it's construed, you know, whether it's you know, a right wing or a left wing populism. There is this desire uh, for, for some sort of uh, for, for some sort of stability in a set of uh, something that eliminates uncertainty, like yes, destabilizing I mean, uncertainty. Right? Yes, they called it they called it social security for a reason. Yeah. People just want to come home safe at the end of the day and know they're protected. Yeah, and you want you want you want the you want the sort of vicissitudes and chaos of life, um, you know, reduced. You want to feel like things are going to be okay, and there's there's a sort of um, there's a cushion if you fall, and there's you know you're safe and secure in where you are, and that you can sort of focus yourself on uh, thriving, flourishing, you know, spending time with your family. Um, and, and the fact of the matter is, American life in 2017 is a life of like. You know, constantly worrying about everything. Yeah. I mean, just, even, even for people who get out of the like the like raw, straight up working class grind, like middle class uh, existence yes. is, is mostly really unstable. Tenuous. Yeah, yeah. It's just a constant set of. I mean, it is crazy that we've constructed this thing that, like, for the vast majority of people, is just a constant set of um, worries, anxieties, bewildering choices. I mean, my my favorite my favorite piece on this ever was Tom Gagan wrote a piece of back in 2005 in Slate when they were um 
trying to privatize Social Security. And you just wrote this piece being like, please, for the love of God, the last thing I want to do is like manage one more thing in my life. Like, do, oh, do, yeah. Not, yeah. do not give me some private account that then I got to remember the login and password for oh, and then yeah. like choose my plan. And this is the same idea behind the unbelievably un- popular GOP healthcare bill, which they sold to everyone as like more consumer choice. It's like, what? No, no, no one wants that. They don't, we don't want to be, have more choices. People say this about schools too. The point choice is a means to an end. People want quality. They want to be taken care of. They want good schools and good health insurance and a good pension. They don't want to a lot of choices between crappy schools and a lot of choices between crappy insurance and a lot of choices about how to invest their money so that they can like live in retirement. The choice itself is a means to an end. If you give people this, the good stuff, then that's what they want. Yeah. It, it's yeah. not like candy. And in a way, in a way, there's the, the way the economic rules keeps shifting and changing faster and faster than ever. That's causing much more disorder in most people's lives than yep. anything that's going on down at the border. Mexico, Absolutely. Texas. Yep. All right. Well, Chris Hayes, the book is called A Colony of a Nation. It is available anywhere books are sold and or downloaded. You should get it. Uh, Chris, thanks very much for, for joining us today. And I hope you hope you come back. Thank you. Definitely. All right. We will be right back. Hello, So That Happened listeners. I want to just take a moment to ask you to do a few small favors. First, if you like the show and want to help more people find it, go over to iTunes and just leave us a review. Every review we get bumps the show a little bit higher in the podcast charts. It does make a difference, and it's going to help us build this community. Second, are there issues you'd like us to address? People you think we should talk to. You should drop us an email at so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. We really do appreciate your suggestions, and we often follow up on stories, and we just like hearing feedback and criticism. So we'd love to hear from you specifically, because you're the people that matter the most to us. Now, back to the show. And we're back. Uh, I see that we've we've got Arthur Delaney hanging here. And uh, joining us again, we had him on a few weeks ago, but he's back. Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, David Wood. David, um, so we talked about you coming back on the show and just to see what the topic of discussion. Oh, yes. It's uh, we're all going we're, to We're all going to die. And we're yeah. all going to die. Well, so, there's that. So welcome. Welcome back to the show to talk about our imminent demise. Happy to be here. Um, so you wrote a piece uh, for HuffPost Highline, uh, and when you described it, on Twitter, you said it was the scariest piece you've ever written in your life. Is that? Is that did I, I didn't say in my life, okay, but it was but scary. In a while? I think I said unnerving. And the reason is because the more I looked at the processes that can lead to war, the more I thought, uh-oh. Okay. So so uh, strictly speaking, we're talking about the possibility of uh, open conflict between the United States and Russia. And you picture this all starting in the vicinity that uh, I believe we once called the highway to the danger zone. (laughs) I hadn't heard that, but uh, it could be. So look, uh, what got me interested in this was um, thinking back to the Cold War when it was a pretty dangerous thing. We had 61,000 nuclear warheads on the two sides. Most of them aimed at each other. And what kept us from going to war was a whole bunch of very carefully uh, designed processes for 
conflict management or crisis management to prevent small things from blowing up into big things. And we don't have any of those today. I was like, well, how dangerous is this? So I looked in particular at the uh, the confrontation between American and Russian airplanes in the Baltic Sea, over the Baltic Sea, right. where we fly a lot and they intercept us a lot. And so there's this kind of natural uh, tension there and potential problem. If they make a mistake and clip one of our planes and the plane goes spiraling down into the water, that could be the start of something pretty dangerous. So what happens most of the time and what I've written about is uh, a big American plane, uh, basically a spy plane, surveillance plane, flying in international airspace. It's a big passenger liner-sized jet, four engines, big plane, a lot of people on board, about three dozen people on board. And it's flying straight and level and steady, and it gets intercepted by a Russian jet that suddenly appears up out of nowhere and and normally flies right alongside. You know, it's a perfectly routine kind of maneuver, and it's not a problem. The routine situation is like, we're just letting you know we're here. Right. And yeah. we intercept them when they fly along the West Coast or uh, wherever, and they intercept us. And most of the time, until recently, it's been pretty routine. Nothing's ever happened. Now what's happening is the Russians are beginning to harass our planes a little bit. <clears throat> so one of the things they'll do is to come right at one of our planes and then sort of veer off at the last second. Or do this barrel roll where they, you know, perform a 360 around one of our planes. And again, one of our planes now is this big, heavy, lumbering four-engine jet that's not highly maneuverable. So the only thing American pilots can do is sit there and hope the Russian guy knows what he's doing. And so far they have. But it's a dangerous situation. I looked at that to see if something like that happened, if there was some kind of an accident, then what? Well, I mean, I suppose that what one expects might happen in that kind of situation is for a diplomatic measure to be taken. You need to pick up the, the famous telex phone, get on the phone, de-escalate tensions. And, right. and as you point out, there's been historically a number of treaties that in the place of uh, – that have kind of curtailed the ways human beings on either side can respond to a situation by channeling them into sort of set responses that didn't lead to an escalation of the conflict. Right. Those are called off-ramps. So if you have a confrontation, both sides are sort of ratcheting up the tension. People look for off-ramps. How do we get out of this situation? What's a face-saving uh, thing to do here so that we don't go to nuclear warfare, which is sort of at the end of that road, Right. So one of the things that caught my eye immediately was we don't have those treaties in place anymore. So there's no there's no arranged no prearranged channels for communication of that kind. Second thing is now we have social media and and 24/7 news cycles <clears throat> so that when something happens everybody knows about it immediately including the president. So What's happened in the past is that there's been an incident. It gets filters up towards the White House through layers of military and, and diplomatic staff people. And by the time it gets to the president, people sort of know, okay, we actually do know what happened. We're not going to jump to conclusions. And we've begun to think about how to respond. All that's gone now because the president can respond by tweet right away. And he's always watching TV. Right. And not to mention that many of the staff positions that normally would assess the situation to begin to figure out how, how can we 
deal with this firmly but without provoking the other side to escalate, a lot of those offices are empty because, as we know, Trump hasn't appointed or nominated a lot of people. But this isn't simply about Donald Trump being crazy. It's Russia, according to your story, that has uh, disengaged from a lot of these uh, off-ramps. Right. Russia has not only disengaged, but Russia um, has adopted this strategy under Putin of what's called escalation dominance. <clears throat> and the idea there is basically a game of chicken. You know, we will keep escalating until you back down. And so that's been driving a lot of what Russia's been doing over the last year or two. One of the things, you talk about face-saving, operating through back channels, situations that require a firm response, but ne necessarily a zero-sum response. You think about the personality of a person who goes into a situation and says, let's give these guys a way to save face and get out. You think about our current president, the negotiator, uh, the hardballer, the person who's put us on a hard power. Uh, I'm not seeing a lot of – I'm not seeing the like the face-saving instincts in this guy. And I certainly don't see it in Putin. So here's what we don't know. We don't know if if Russian President Putin and President Trump are in a room together, nobody else, or if they're on the phone together, nobody else. How does Trump act? You know, is he the sort of bombastic, impulsive tweeter that we see in public or is he different? We don't know that. I hope he's different. Because up till now, what we've seen from these impulsive tweets is ratcheting up the tension, mm -hmm. you know, daring the other guy. You, you escalate? We'll, you es even we'll escalate in, even further. You even quote him in the piece, describing the very situation you talk about, an intercept that goes haywire or a confrontation that gets a little hot. You said you got to shoot him. You At some point, you got to shoot. I mean, you just got to shoot is what he said. So – you also are well sourced in the military. What do the generals in Europe say about the situation? Are, are they saying, no, don't worry, guys, we got this? Well, they say two things. One is that, the, and this is true because I know a lot of them, the front, the first responders in a crisis. So these are the guys, the watchstanders on, on warship bridges in, in the Black Sea, for example, which get buzzed by Russian jets. Or, you know, the pilots, the NATO and U.S. pilots who are right up against the Russians. They are really good. They're well-trained. They're cool, professional. You know, we don't have a problem with those guys. The problem is that it gets – that those situations get kicked up to the Oval Office really quickly like we were describing before. And that makes the military nervous because up until now, those kinds of dicey incidents <clears throat> are filtered through the military. And by the time it gets to the Oval Office – as I was saying before, people know, yeah, we know what happened because first reports are always wrong, right? Yeah. Uh, so we, we've determined what's happened and we've begun to staff out how do we respond in a way that's firm but, you know, not dangerous. So if that – you know, so that's been the case up until now. Now, who knows? So that's why the, the, the generals are sort of saying this is a situation of maximum danger. Yeah. But even uh – I, I was always under the impression that even when situations like this get kicked up the chain, you're still talking about a situation where people are sitting in a sit room. They're discussing options. A bad option gets sort of gently kicked to the curb in favor of a better one. There's 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 a process where people who are experts can tell people who are maybe not experts but feel the need to impulsively act 
the way in which they can channel their uh, energy to do something productive. It, it, are those are are are, are those. Is what I described not no longer in place? No, I think part part of it is in place. I mean, you see the National Security Council now being taken over by H.R. McMaster and uh, Steve Bannon being ousted from the National Security Council right. uh, from the Principals Committee meetings. Um, so there's beginning to be that kind of professional staffing that you really rely on in a crisis. But again, still a lot of those offices in the Pentagon are empty, as I think we talked about last time. Yeah, yeah. Um, what that means is you have career civil servants acting in those positions and they don't have the political heft that a political appointee does. So in a crisis, again, those people are kind of sidelined and you don't get that kind of professional, cool, experienced look at a crisis that, that we used to get. Your story describes a lot of the benefits of military to military communication between the U.S. and Russia. Uh, personal relationships between adversaries. Yeah, but some of that has deteriorated uh, for political reasons, right? It's not just that uh, the two sides don't like each other or something like that. No, but look, I mean, the U.S. and Russia have been at loggerheads for a long time. Um, Russia claims that, that it was unfair for us, for the, U the U.S. to accept as members in NATO all the countries that used to be Russian allies, you know, all the Warsaw Pact right, yeah. countries. There are 10 of them. Uh, fair enough. I, you know, I kind of get their anger at that. You know, we claim that they've been violating all those treaties bit by bit by bit. And I think, you know, we have a good case to make on that score. So there's grievances on both sides. That's, you know, that's normal life. Um, the problem is how to manage it as these two political entities sort of grind up against each other. How do you prevent that little spark from kicking off something big and, and really unwanted by both sides? That's really the question now. And I, I think we've got a lot of work to do before we have those people and processes in place to keep that from happening. If you could advise the new administration about how to restore productive relationships with uh, this adversary or other adversaries, what would you recommend? Would you would you recommend uh, – how, how would you even go about it? It seems it seems that that these relationships are sort of now intractably defined. But you know, it seems to me that if you want to, if you don't want war, you have to hope that I'm wrong about that. But can't we just all get along? <laughs> I mean, that's right. really the basis of it, right? So, uh, so I went to the Russian embassy here in Washington to talk to them about this, and they're like, "Well, we have grievances, but we'd really like to talk about them." And uh, so both sides are saying we should talk about all this, and neither side wants to go first, and all this kind of dance going on. Um, I think both we and the Russians have a vested interest in preventing thermonuclear war. Duh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so let's get at it. I mean, it, it requires a little bit of backing down, a little bit of face-saving maneuvering to say, okay, uh, you know, we still think that your deployment of those ground-launched cruise missiles, Russia, in Europe is violates the treaty, but – Let's put that aside and let's talk about instituting some of those crisis management procedures that we used to have. Yeah, Trump, and Trump has talked about shooting down planes and blowing up ships, but he's also said a lot more stuff about how it would be nice to get along with Russia. So there's an opening. Well, as Dwight Eisenhower once said, it's really easy to prevent small wars from escalating. So we should be fine. Okay. Did Eisenhower really say that? No, he said the opposite of that. Okay. Okay. I was I was wondering why you were bringing it up. <laughs> yep. Pretty pretty simple matter. Um, 
David, thanks for being with us. It's nice to be with a couple of famous Eisenhower scholars. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's, what we're, it's what we're known for. It's our brand. I like uh, – how does it go? I like Eisenhower. I like Coors Light. <laughs> All right. Uh, we will be right back. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Zach Young. Our executive producer is Nick Offenberg. Thanks to Nick for helping us out in our New York studio this week. I'm Jason Lincolns. This week we were joined by journalist and author Chris Hayes, as well as Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, and David Wood. So That Happened is available on iTunes at iTunes.com slash So That Happened. Please check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening, and we miss you already. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.